This is the first Sunday after Thanksgiving, which means it is the first week of Advent officially. Um, it is a liturgical time on the church calendar where we look forward to the coming of Christ. For some of you, this is the watershed moment where Christmas music can finally be turned on and enjoyed and not resented. For others of you, um, it is a time to really start shifting your attention, and that's what we want to call you to is, is, is preparing your heart. That's what Advent's about, right? The word Advent simply means the arrival or the coming, and it is our period of, of entering into the longing of the coming of Christ to prepare our hearts for His arrival, not the event of Christmas. The event of Christmas is purely exhausting. Um, I'm talking about the, the deeper significance of the coming of Christ um, into the world, right? Now, it is strange for us to be working our way through Romans 9 as a way of preparing our hearts for Christmas. Romans 9 is definitely not a typical Advent passage. Uh, but here's the thing, Christmas would make absolutely no sense without the theological foundations of God's sovereignty. If God were not in control, Christmas would not be something to be celebrated. Because when Jesus became man, when God became man in Jesus, when, when God broke into human history and the human story, it was part of a plan, right? It was not a Hail Mary attempt to score some win for humanity who was in desperate straits at the end of the game, right? He was working out His foreordained plan of salvation, of redemption, and restoration. And it is good for us to be reminded that God is never not in control. Now, here's the thing, as comforting as that can be and honestly should be, that we have a God who is greater than the human story, a God who is telling His story through the human story, a God who has never derailed in His intent to redeem and restore, these theological truths can also be deeply challenging. This is a comforting truth, but it's also a challenging truth. Um, when we realize that God is sovereign, it reminds us that we are not. And all of the personal and theological complexities that come with that. I had a pastor who used to say, uh, God loves you, and I have a wonderful plan for your life. And that was always his way of preceding an invitation you simply could not resist uh, to do something, right? To get involved in something. Some of you have heard me use that line. Um, because it's a good one, so I stole it. Uh, but the reality is, many of us approach God with that very same line of thinking. Uh, I love you, God, and I have a wonderful plan for your life. I'm thankful that you love me, and I have some expectations about how you're supposed to operate in this world, who you're supposed to be, who you're supposed to bless, who you're supposed to punish, how it's all supposed to work out. God, I'm going to show up with some expectations. And um, it's difficult for us when God not only doesn't meet those expectations, but breaks the rules that we think define fairness. When, when God acts in ways, that's hard for us to explain. When God makes choices that we don't know how to create logical frameworks for. When God is God, and we are not. Now, here's the thing. Romans 9 
digs deeply into these tensions. But I'm going to warn you, Paul doesn't show up to comfort us in our insecurity. He shows up to confront us in our pride. Because at the heart of this isn't simply a fearful heart, it is a prideful heart. A heart that thinks it should have the right to judge who God is, how He acts, and how He conducts His affairs in the world. We think we know what is right and fair and just. And we're going to find ourselves at times in crisis where we're either going to have to admit that God knows things we don't and acts in ways we don't understand and He is still just, or we're going to decide we are the just ones and start harboring resentment, anger, um, and fear toward God. See, Paul knows that we have to repent of the pride that causes us to think that we know better than God because God doesn't coddle our pride. He doesn't comfort our pride. He exposes it. Because at the end of the day, you're either going to trust God to be God or you're going to insist on being God. And God is only going to meet you when we've been humbled. So let's take a look at Romans 9, 14 through 18. We're just looking at a few verses this morning. I was thinking about, I was actually originally intending to do the rest of the chapter, uh, which I could have done, but it just would have required me to blow through these verses. And there's some, some subtlety and some tension in these verses that I really felt for us to understand this passage we needed to spend some time with. And so we're going to look at these verses and finish out the chapter next week. Um, but let's go ahead and take a look at Romans 9, 14 through 18, starting in verse 14. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. All right, Paul, at this stage of the argument, uh, remember, is, is focusing on his Jewish audience. We have a Jewish Gentile audience in the Church of Rome, and he is preparing uh, to go to Spain uh, to carry the gospel into a whole new territory, to share it with a whole new people, and he wants Rome to become his, his sending church, his, his foundational church, but that's going to require them to not only grow in generous love for each other, but to completely undo the need to have others, right? Because we all do that. It's a human nature. There's us and there's them. We're the good guys. They're the bad guys. There's Jews. There's Gentiles. There's Romans. There's barbarians. And, 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 and God uh, wants to undo these artificial and prideful divisions that cause people to separate from one another, to have partisan identities, personal identities that ultimately cut them off from others because the cutting off from others actually cuts us off from the experience and the generosity of grace. If they're going to genuinely partner with him in reaching Spain, they have to genuinely start undoing um, those heart divisions that keep them from being generous in grace. And that, that starts at home, right? That means the Jews are going to have to learn how to love the Gentiles in their context. The Gentiles are going to have to learn how to love the barbarians in their context, right? And, and so he is at this point speaking specifically 
to his Jewish audience, the Jewish audience who is struggling to understand how God could shift his blessing from the Israelites to the Gentiles, right? The early church, the church in Rome, began as a, a Jewish community. It began in the synagogues, and, and then the Jewish community was expelled from Rome, and, and then when Nero lifted that expulsion, they returned, and when they returned, the church had fundamentally shifted in its culture. It was now dominated by Gentiles, non-Jewish people who had become followers of Jesus, and they now found themselves um, minorities in a dominant culture that they found not only alienating, but offensive. They found it off-putting um, and, and made them very, very uncomfortable, right? Uh, and they saw the world, and this is, this is endemic to the human condition. They saw the world as made up of three groups, right? The good guys, the bad guys, and God. And uh, they were part of the good guys, and, and they're, they're always asking, are you part of the good guys, or are you on the other side and part of the bad guys? And, and um, uh, instead of recognizing that, in fact, there's only two groups, there's God and bad guys in need of grace. That's all there are, right? But, but as a result of this, it left the Jewish Christians in Rome with a dual struggle. They saw the good guys who deserved blessing missing out on it. And they saw the bad guys who deserved judgment receiving blessing. And as a result, they're left with this deep and unsettling conflict in their hearts, right? Which Paul puts into the form of a rhetorical question in verse 14, right? What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part. Is God an unjust God? How can He be just and not bless the good guys? How can He be just and not punish the bad guys? Here's the reality for most of us. I mean, we're not Jews in the first century church living in Rome, but we're not far off. If I were to ex examine your thoughts right now, if you were to examine your own thoughts right now, you would probably discover that there are people you have in mind that you just know deserve to be blessed by God. If God is just, He would bless these people. And there are people in your mind that you know if God were just, He would punish them because that's what they deserve. When we see God doing what we think is unfair, blessing those that we think deserve to be punished, or withholding blessing from those that we think deserve to be blessed, it creates an internal crisis for us. It makes God feel unpredictable, capricious, because clearly He's not doing what is right. I know what is right. <laughs> it's so obvious. How could God not operate according to my understanding of fairness? How can I trust a God like that? Is there injustice on God's part? Now, Paul senses that his readers are in this place of internal conflict. 
But I'm going to warn you over the next, this week and next week, he doesn't turn to comforting words. He shifts instead to a series of rhetorical questions that are a series of jabs designed to confront the pride behind the question. He pushes in not to comfort them, but to expose them, their fear uh, and their sense of justice in order for them to see the pride that ultimately causes them to feel worthy of judging God instead of humbly accepting God as he reveals himself. See, they don't need comfort in their fear. They need to repent of the pride that's causing it. So Paul juxtaposes in this passage two very well-known Old Testament figures. Uh, he, he juxtaposes Moses and Pharaoh. And you guys already know, right? Who's the good guy? Yeah, it's going to be Moses, right? And who's the bad guy? It's going to be Pharaoh, right? Pharaoh in the Old Testament was a lot like Hitler to us, right? If you want, if you want an example of a really bad guy, you just throw out the name of Pharaoh and everyone's like, yeah, he's bad, right? If you want an example of a really good guy, right? I don't know, maybe today you'd throw out Billy Graham or something, right? Back then it was Moses. Moses was clearly the good guy, right? Um, <laughs> yeah, not so much. All right, let's take a look. Uh, so he starts with Moses. Moses, the father of the Mosaic Covenant, right? The, 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 the hero who led the nation of Israel out of Egypt, um, who, who saw the glory of God in ways no one else had ever seen it, right? A man who had been honored above pretty much any other man at that point, in many ways after, right? Uh, he was the one who brought the law, the Mosaic law, that made Israel unique among all the people groups. He was the one who led Israel into this covenant that, that made Israel, the nation of Israel, God's chosen people, His unique people in all the earth. Only Israel entered into the Mosaic covenant. Only they were under the Old Testament law. They uniquely had a relationship with God because of the work of Moses. If there was a good guy in the good guy camp, surely it would be Moses, a giant in the history of Israel, the father of the Mosaic covenant, a man who had beheld the very glory of God. Well, verse 15, Paul quotes uh, Exodus 33:19. right? Take a look at verse 15. He says, for he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So the context of Exodus 33, um, God has already given the Ten Commandments. God, Moses received the, the two tablets of stone, came down from the mountains, saw the children of Israel worshiping the golden calf, already breaking the Ten Commandments uh, by forming a false god. He shatters the Ten Commandments in absolute disgust at the behavior of the people. He then reascends the mountain, has a conversation with God. God is about to give him two new tablets of stone, right? Because Moses broke the first ones. And, uh, and, and in this moment, Moses is like, you know what? This is really hard, God, and, and I just need to know who you are. I need you to reveal yourself to me in a unique way that will sustain me and help me to lead these people. I need to know you, Lord. So the Lord honored that request. The Lord said, 
I'm going to show you my glory. Not my full face. That would destroy you. I'll show you my backside. It's rather humorous in, in the original text. I'll, I'll just give you the glimpse of my, my back um, because you can't see my face. You're going to see that. I'm also going to let you know my name because my name is, is, is super important. It's my identity. And oh yeah, there's one more critical thing you need to know about me. You want to know who I am? I owe nothing to anyone. God considers that attribute so important that it is shared with Moses as one of the most critical things Moses needs to know about God to know God. I owe no one anything. I will be gracious to whomever I want to be gracious to. And I will harden whomever I want to harden. I am a merciful God and I will show mercy to whoever I will show mercy to. If you want to know me, this is what you need to know about me. I'm absolutely sovereign and I do as I please. See, God doesn't respond in the way we do to the differences in people, right? He doesn't look at one man and say, you're more worthy than another. He doesn't say, you deserve. God doesn't respond to human merit. He initiates toward humans completely regardless of merit and then simply calls humans to respond to that initiation. That's a strange thing for God to reveal to Moses as one of the most critical things for Moses to know in order to know God. Then Paul takes that general principle from Exodus 33 and he draws a, a, a general truth from it in verse 16. So then, Paul says, it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. Not on human will or exertion. Literally in the Greek, it says not on those who will or on those who run. Uh, James Dunn, a theologian, says that these two words sum up the totality of human capacity. In other words, God's mercy does not depend on anything we desire or do. Anything we want or any way we behave, not our intent and not our achievement. God does not respond to us. He initiates to us and calls us to respond to him. So God makes it very clear. I don't measure a man and then bless him according to his worth. It's not what I do. I bless whomever I want to bless and I harden whomever I want to harden. See, no one forces the hand of God. No one turns God into a debtor. 
showing up and saying, here's my good works, here's my good intentions, here's my sacrifices, here's all the ways I've denied myself, here's all the way I've served others, now you owe me. God is never in the position of a debtor, nor is his hand ever forced by the entitlement of those who seek to leverage their good works against him. No one is entitled to blessing. And here's the implication that Paul is making, not even Moses. Moses, the guy who was clearly in the good guy camp, Moses, the guy that if, if, if anybody deserved the blessing of God, if anybody was in the good guy camp and was blessed because he was a good guy, which was, I think, the broad Jewish conception, clearly Moses was blessed. We know that. When you read through the Old Testament, God poured out his blessing on Moses. The assumption was he must somehow have been worthy of that blessing. There must have been something about him that caused God to be merciful to him. And yet God looks at Moses and says, don't think this blessing is yours because you deserve it. Don't think you're being honored because somehow you are worthy of this honor. You are not. God was gracious to Moses, not because of some virtue in Moses or some merit in Moses, not because he willed or he, he desired or ran or worked, but simply because he chose Moses. And having, chose, having chosen Moses to be a vessel of blessing, he blessed Moses. So if Moses wasn't blessed because he was a good guy, what about Pharaoh? We know Pharaoh was judged. Pharaoh received what we think was the, the proper outcome of his life, right? The Pharaoh was Moses' counterpoint in the Old Testament, right? He embodied all the power, the worldly power of the ancient world, and with it, he embodied all the cruelty and the hubris that came, right? This is a guy who was raised to think he was divine. Like from his youngest age, people around him told him that he was in fact a god and treated him as if he were a god. And as a result, his entire experience of life had been warped. His every desire was fulfilled. His every vengeance was punished. His every lust was satisfied. He was, from his earliest days, told, you are divine, because all pharaohs are gods on earth. You are a God among gods. And then he was treated as if he was divine. So he actually wielded God-like power. He, he could, with a word, satisfy a desire, end a person's life, get a good dinner, or go on a trip. He had the embodiment of worldly 
power. And as a result, he became the embodiment of all the, the corruption that, that power produces. He was cruel and capricious. He, he, he would give blessings to his friends and enslave entire nations in inhumane conditions. He, he was self-indulgent. He was violent. He was haughty. Clearly, God judged Pharaoh because of his obvious moral failings and narcissistic cruelty. Right? Take a look at verse 17. Verse 17, for the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose, I have raised you up that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So this quote comes from Exodus 9. Uh, Moses is coming to Pharaoh uh, at this point, still saying, let my people go, let my people go. If you guys remember, there were 10 plagues. And, and between each of those 10 plagues, Moses showed up to Pharaoh and said, God says, let my people go. And each time the Pharaoh said, mm, yeah, that's not going to happen. And each time God sent another plague, right? And, and it is interesting that each of those plagues uh, seem to be judgments on regional gods, Right? Because the Pharaoh wasn't, never considered himself a high god, he was a god among gods. And so there was, there was still a god of the harvest and, 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 a, and a god of, of uh, productivity and a god of, there were river gods and land gods and harvest gods and, and all kinds of, of gods. And the Pharaoh was a god among gods, right? And in each of the 10 plagues, one of those local deities, one of those worldly gods was shown to be powerless. He's showing up now in this passage um, just before the seventh of the ten plagues. And God reveals something. And, and, and here's what's interesting is, is God is saying it to Pharaoh, but it doesn't reveal something about Pharaoh. It reveals something about God. Right? In verse 17, it says, I raised you up. I put you here. I didn't look across the world and go, oh no, there's a really bad guy doing really bad things to my people. I wonder what I can do about that. He says, I raised you up. See, the Pharaoh didn't climb up some bloody hill of human conquest of the will or of the work in order to land in this position of power. He didn't get there through, through political uh, uh, talent or the raw exercise of brutality. God didn't look over the world and say, oh no, there's an evil man. God looks at Pharaoh and says, for all of your hubris and all of your pride, you need to know I raised you up. I put you here because I have a purpose and I have a plan and in your resistance against me you serve me 
I didn't find you and respond to you. I chose you. I raised you up for this very purpose. See, Paul is making it clear God didn't judge Pharaoh because he was a bad guy. He hardened Pharaoh's heart because he had a purpose for Pharaoh. See, Paul is confronting us with a very uncomfortable truth. Even God's negative actions, like hardening the heart of Pharaoh, have a positive purpose. That as God works, he works in line with a greater purpose. As Paul has already said in the very last chapter, God works all things together for the good. And only he defines the good. He is in the process of redeeming and restoring. And he is the only one who understands how all the puzzle pieces fit together. In order for that story to be told, in order for that outcome to be achieved, he hardened Pharaoh's heart. Because he had a purpose for Pharaoh that required Pharaoh to resist him. So what was the difference between Moses and Pharaoh then? If one's not a good guy and one's not a bad guy, one wasn't blessed because he earned it and one wasn't punished because of his depravity, what's the only difference? Verse 18, so then he has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills. The only difference is God's intervening mercy. That's it. Moses wasn't a good guy and Pharaoh wasn't a bad guy. They were both unworthy, rebellious sinners. One was softened through mercy. One was hardened through judgment. And if that doesn't make you uncomfortable, I don't think you're understanding what I'm saying. I'm just going to say it, man. This is hard stuff. If, if we can talk about this stuff without being made uneasy, if we can talk about the sovereignty of God without in some ways being fearful, deeply humbled, and left a little bit confused, we've probably become arrogant in our theological knowledge. Because this is deeply and profoundly unsettling. When we see a God who reveals to us His absolute sovereignty over the affairs of man, we are left with deep and profound and complex questions. And personal questions, too. 
If God is this much in control, if God hardens who He will and softens who He wills, why? Why did this happen to me? Why? Why Why did He choose that one and not that one? Why does He extend grace here and withhold it there? Why? There are obvious questions that fall out of this, and in verse 19, he actually gets there, right? In verse 19, you will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? Now, we're going to get to that question next week. It was too much. I could not, I couldn't keep you here for two hours. Um, We're going to get to this next week. But know that if this unsettles you, you're not alone. It's supposed to. I think in many ways, Paul's purpose in digging into this with the Romans was to unsettle them because it was unsettling them that would cause them to rediscover their humility and expose their pride. And to once again be forced to admit, you are God and I am not. And I don't understand you. But I have to learn how to trust you. So I want to leave you with three observations coming out of this. The first is this, no one has a claim on God's blessing. No one. There are no good guys. No one can show up saying, oh God, I deserve to be blessed. God, I, I, I have done this. I have sacrificed this. I have given this. I have laid down my life like this. I, I have devoted my life in these ways, and I therefore am worthy. No one has a claim on God's blessing. It's going to be helpful for us to remember the context of this whole discussion, right? The Israelites were struggling in Rome. The Israelites were struggling. How is it that the whole nation of Israel is walking away from their God? The Christ has come and Israel has not received her Savior, has not embraced her King, has not been blessed by her Messiah, but that blessing has passed over Israel to the Gentiles. Those who were not God's people. Those who were not part of the covenant. The people that we thought deserved God's blessing, they're not coming to the party. And those who didn't, holy cow, those who walked in rebellion and uncleanness and all manner of sin, Man, they're coming in like a flood. They were offended by the way God was handling His grace, which showed a fundamental misunderstanding of grace. They thought the good guys deserved it, which would no longer make it grace, but make it a wage to be earned. But that's the beauty of grace. Grace is never earned. It is never deserved. Paul, instead of comforting their fear, is confronting their pride. There are no good guys. 
only people in need of grace. Secondly, mercy is the driving force of this passage. If we miss that, we're going to miss the heart of what Paul is saying. We'll lose sight of it, man. The the central thrust of this passage is God's mercy, not his judgment. Now, it is true that that he shows his mercy in unexpected ways according to rules we don't understand. And it is also true that God is a God of justice and judgment. But if it weren't for the mercy of God, we'd all be vessels of wrath. If it were not for the mercy of God intervening in the human story, the human story would end with everyone being judged. If God didn't intervene in love and mercy, we'd all be damned. Moses, Pharaoh, me, you, we'd all be lost without strength, without hope. But God is a God of justice. But he's also a God of mercy. He is rich in mercy because he is a God of love. You cannot understand God's actions in human history without a foundational understanding that it's all mercy. It's all mercy. The fact that God is still engaged and still active is mercy. The fact that God is still present and working is mercy. The fact that God has a plan to redeem and to restore is mercy. Because his foundational motivation is love. And that leads me to the final point, which is this. To trust God's hand, you must trust first his heart. If you find the expression of God's sovereignty unsettling, which you should, that's kind of, I think, the point. The way you rediscover your foundation is by rediscovering your experience of God's love. See, over and over and over again as humans, we are confronted with these big God questions. Can I trust you? Are you fair? Are you just? Am I free? Are humans just robots and puppets? Why? Why do you do this? Why are you like this? Why is this the way the world is? Why? Why this morning? Is there so much suffering across this world? Why? Every single week, is there someone going off the deep end and murdering slews of people? Why? Are nations rising up against nations with with modern pharaohs obsessed in their hunger for power, willing to slaughter entire nations of people to satisfy their greed? 
Why? And we keep asking why over and over and over. Why and why and why? As if more information would actually help us make sense of it all. But the reality is, why is the wrong question. Because it doesn't matter how much more information you get. You will never discover what you need. Even if you knew all that God knows, which is an impossibility, you will be left with a gaping hole of need because it's not more information you need. It's the confirmation that the God who has all the information is motivated by love and that he loves you. It's not more knowledge that will comfort our fear. It is not more knowledge that will comfort our hurts or make sense of our pains. We don't need more knowledge because knowledge won't heal the wounds of our soul. Only love can do that. Which is why every time we show up to God and say, why, 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 we get the same answer. I love you. God doesn't explain himself. He's never defensive, saying, hey, wait, 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 let me, let me just give you some more information. He meets us in our whys with the persistent reminder that He is a God of mercy and a God of love. He doesn't explain Himself, but He does reveal Himself. His love, His grace, His humility... This is the God, remember, who humbled himself to become one of us. To live a life we should have lived and then die the death we deserve to die. This is the God who substituted himself for us, paying a price we could never pay and suffering in ways we can never imagine. Because he loved us and in his mercy wanted to bless us. Listen, it's futile to try to understand God's hand because we will never understand the mind of God. His ways are above our ways. Like the sky is above the earth, like the stars are above the sea. He doesn't explain himself, but he reveals himself. And it's in responding to his love that we come to trust his heart even when we don't understand his hand. When we recognize that we have a God, a God who created life, who then laid down his life, that we might have life, a God who entered into death, that we might be delivered from death and enter into his resurrection. When we have that kind of God who stepped into our judgment so that we could stand in his blessing, when we have that kind of God we're released from our need to judge God and to quibble over fairness. 
is God's not fair. He's loving. He is just. But he is merciful. And he invites us, even when we don't understand, to continue to trust. All right, I'm going to close this in a word of prayer. We'll keep going through this next week. Hope you're ready. We'll get into the rest of this uh, uh, next week. We'll stop there for this morning. Let me pray for us as we move into a time of reflection, share communion. Father, you are inscrutable. You are. Have you, had you not revealed yourself, you'd be unknowable. Had you not shown us who you are, you would be so far beyond us, we could never know who you were. And yet, in our need to understand this world, to understand the pain and the suffering, to understand the blessing and the judgment, we continually seek to analyze you, to weigh your motivations, and to judge your actions. Lord, we, we repent of our need to sit in judgment over you this morning. We repent of our need to measure whether you are just or you are not. And we receive your revelation that you are a just God who is rich in mercy. And as unsettling as we find your power, man, it just deepens our gratitude for your heart. That you are a God who we can't understand. But you give us a love that we can. That we can understand and we can receive and we can respond to. And we can trust you. Because you're God and we're not. And as we look forward to the uh, celebration of Christmas and enter into this Advent season, the Spirit remind our hearts that this is, in fact, incredibly good news. That we don't have to have it all figured out. We don't have to be confident and, 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 and have all of our T's crossed and I's dotted. We simply have to trust the God who's in control. God who knows the beginning from the end, the God who is working, always working to redeem and restore. That the human story might not be a tragedy of loss, but might become a beautiful story of redemption and restoration. Awaken our hearts in humility to respond once again to your love. We thank you for this mercy. In the beautiful and mighty name of our Savior, our Lord Jesus Christ, and all of God's people said,